Section 10 of Youth by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. Chapters 37 through 40. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 37 through 40. Chapter 37. Affairs of the Heart. Affaire du Cour exercised me greatly that winter. In fact, I fell in love three times. The first time I became passionately enamoured of a buxom lady whom I used to see riding at Freetag's riding-school, with the result that every day when she was taking a lesson there, that is to say, every Tuesday and Friday, I used to go to gaze at her, but always in such a state of trepidation lest I should be seen that I stood a long way off, and bolted directly I thought her likely to approach the spot where I was standing. Likewise, I used to turn round so precipitately whenever she appeared to be glancing in my direction, that I never saw her face well, and to this day do not know whether she was really beautiful or not. Dubkoff, who was acquainted with her, surprised me one day in the riding-school where I was lurking concealed behind the ladies' grooms and the fur wraps which they were holding, and having heard from Dmitri of my infatuation frightened me so terribly by proposing to introduce me to the Amazon that I fled incontinently from the school, and was prevented by the mere thought that possibly he had told her about me from ever entering the place again, or even from hiding behind her grooms, lest I should encounter her. Whenever I fell in love with ladies whom I did not know, and especially married women, I experienced a shyness a thousand times greater than I had ever felt with Sonetchka. I dreaded beyond measure that my divinity should learn of my passion, or even of my existence since I felt sure that, once she had done so, she would be so terribly offended that I should never be forgiven for my presumption. And, indeed, if the Amazon referred to above had ever come to know how I used to stand behind the grooms and dream of seizing her and carrying her off to some country spot, if she had ever come to know how I should have lived with her there, and how I should have treated her, it is probable that she would have had very good cause for indignation. But I always felt that, once I got to know her, she would straightway divine these thoughts, and consider herself insulted by my acquaintance. As my second affair de cour, I for the third time fell in love with Sonetchka when I saw her at her sister's. My second passion for her had long since come to an end, but I became enamoured of her this third time through Lubotshka sending me a copy-book, in which Sonetchka had copied some extracts from Lermontov's The Demon with certain of the more subtly amorous passages underlined in red ink, and marked with pressed flowers. Remembering how Woloda had been wont to kiss his inamorata's purse last year, I essayed to do the same thing now, and really, when alone in my room in the evenings and engaged in dreaming as I looked at a flower or occasionally pressed it to my lips, I would feel a certain pleasantly lachrymose mood steal over me, and remain genuinely in love, or suppose myself to be so, for at least several days. Finally, my third affair du cour, that winter, was connected with the lady with whom Woloda was in love, and who used occasionally to visit at our house. Yet in this damsel, as I now remember, there was not a single beautiful feature to be found, or, at all events, none of those which usually pleased me. She was the daughter of a well-known Moscow lady of light and leading, and petite and slender, wore long flaxen curls after the English fashion, and could boast of a transparent profile. 
Every one said that she was even cleverer and more learned than her mother, but I was never in a position to judge of that, since, overcome with craven bashfulness at the mere thought of her intellect and accomplishments, I never spoke to her alone but once, and then with unaccountable trepidation. Woloda's enthusiasm, however, for the presence of an audience never prevented him from giving vent to his rapture, communicated itself to me so strongly that I also became enamoured of the lady. Yet, conscious that he would not be pleased to know that two brothers were in love with the same girl, I never told him of my condition. On the contrary, I took special delight in the thought that our mutual love for her was so pure that, though its object was, in both cases, the same charming being, we remained friends and ready, if ever the occasion should arise, to sacrifice ourselves for one another. Yet I have an idea that, as regards self-sacrifice, he did not quite share my views, for he was so passionately in love with the lady that once he was for giving a member of the diplomatic corps, who was said to be going to marry her, a slap in the face and a challenge to a duel. But for my part I would gladly have sacrificed my feelings for his sake seeing that the fact that the only remark I had ever addressed to her had been on the subject of the dignity of classical music, and that my passion for all my efforts to keep it alive expired the following week, would have rendered it the more easy for me to do so. CHAPTER Thirty Eight, THE WORLD As regards those worldly delights to which I had intended on entering the university to surrender myself in imitation of my brother, I underwent a complete disillusionment that winter. Woloda danced a great deal, and Papa also went to balls with his young wife. But I appeared to be thought either too young or too unfitted for such delights, and no one invited me to the houses where balls were being given. Yet, in spite of my vow of frankness with Dmitri, I never told him, nor anyone else, how much I should have liked to go to those dances, and how I felt hurt at being forgotten, and, apparently, taken for the philosopher that I pretended to be. Nevertheless, a reception was to be given that winter at the Princess Kornikoff's, and to it she sent us personal invitations, to myself among the rest. Consequently, I was to attend my first ball. Before starting, Woloda came into my room to see how I was dressing myself, an act on his part which greatly surprised me and took me aback. In my opinion, it must be understood, solicitude about one's dress was a shameful thing, and should be kept under, but he seemed to think it a thing so natural and necessary that he said outright that he was afraid I should be put out of countenance on that score. Accordingly, he bid me don my patent-leather boots, and was horrified to find that I wanted to put on gloves of peau de chamois. Next, he adjusted my watch-chain in a particular manner, and carried me off to a hairdresser's near the Kuznetsky Bridge to have my locks coiffured. That done, he withdrew to a little distance, and surveyed me. "'Yes, he looks right enough now,' he said to the hairdresser. "'Only, couldn't you smooth those tufts of his in front a little? Yet for all that Monsieur Charles treated my forelocks with one essence and another, they persisted in rising up again whenever I put on my hat. In fact, my curled and tonsured figure seemed to me to look far worse than it had done before.' My only hope of salvation lay in an affectation of untidiness. Only in that guise would my exterior resemble anything at all. Woloda, apparently, was of the same opinion, for he begged me to undo the curls, and when I had done so and still looked unpresentable, he ceased to regard me at all, but throughout the drive to the Kornikoffs remained silent 
and depressed. Nevertheless, I entered the Kornakoff's mansion boldly enough, and it was only when the princess had invited me to dance, and I, for some reason or another, though I had driven there with no other thought in my head than to dance well, had replied that I never indulged in that pastime, that I began to blush, and left solitary among a crowd of strangers, became plunged in my usual insuperable and ever-growing shyness. In fact, I remained silent on that spot almost the whole evening. Nevertheless, while a waltz was in progress, one of the young princesses came to me and asked me with the sort of official kindness common to all her family, why I was not dancing. I can remember blushing hotly at the question, but at the same time feeling, for all my efforts to prevent it, a self-satisfied smile steal over my face as I began talking, in the most inflated and long-winded French, such rubbish, as even now, after dozens of years, it shames me to recall. It must have been the effect of the music, which, while exciting my nervous sensibility, drowned, as I supposed, the less intelligible portion of my utterances. Anyhow, I went on speaking of the exalted company present, and of the futility of men and women, until I had got myself into such a tangle that I was forced to stop short in the middle of a word of a sentence which I found myself powerless to conclude. Even the worldly-minded young princess was shocked by my conduct and gazed at me in reproach, whereat I burst out laughing. At this critical moment Woloda, who had remarked that I was conversing with great animation, and probably was curious to know what excuses I was making for not dancing, approached us with Dubkoff. Seeing, however, my smiling face and the princess's frightened mien, as well as overhearing the appalling rubbish with which I concluded my speech, he turned red in the face and wheeled round again. The princess also rose and left me. I continued to smile, but in such a state of agony from the consciousness of my stupidity, that I felt ready to sink into the floor. Likewise I felt that, come what might, I must move about and say something, in order to effect a change in my position. Accordingly I approached Dubkoff, and asked him if he had danced many waltzes with her that night. This I feigned to say in a gay and jesting manner, yet in reality I was imploring help of the very Dubkoff to whom I had cried, Hold your tongue, on the night of the matriculation dinner. By way of answer he made as though he had not heard me, and turned away. Next I approached Woloda, and said with an effort and in a similar tone of assumed gaiety, Hello, Woloda, are you played out yet? He merely looked at me as much as to say, You wouldn't speak to me like that if we were alone, and left me without a word, in the evident fear that I might continue to attach myself to his person. My God! Even my own brother deserts me, I thought to myself. Yet somehow I had not the courage to depart, but remained standing where I was until the very end of the evening. At length, when every one was leaving the room and crowding into the hall, and a footman slipped my greatcoat onto my shoulders in such a way as to tilt up my cap, I gave a dreary, half-lacrimose smile, and remarked to no one in particular, Comme c'est gracieux. CHAPTER Thirty Nine: THE STUDENT'S FEAST Notwithstanding that as yet Dmitri's influence had kept me from indulging in those customary students' festivities known as kuteshi, or wines, that winter saw me participate in such a function, and carry away with me a not over-pleasant impression of it. This is how it came about. At a lecture soon after the new year, Baron Z, a tall, light-haired young fellow of very serious demeanour, and regular features, 
invited us all to spend a sociable evening with him, by us all, I mean all the men more or less faux of our course, and exclusive of Grapp, Semenoff, and Operoff, and commoners of that sort. Willotus smiled contemptuously when he heard that I was going to a wine of first-course men, but I looked to derive some great and unusual pleasure from this, to me, novel method of passing the time. Accordingly, punctually at the appointed hour of eight, I presented myself at the Baron's. Our host, in an open tunic and white waistcoat, received his guests in the brilliantly lighted salon and drawing-room of the small mansion where his parents lived, they having given up their reception-rooms to him for the evening for purposes of this party. In the corridor could be seen the heads and skirts of inquisitive domestics, while in the dining-room I caught a glimpse of a dress which I imagined to belong to the Baroness herself. The guests numbered a score, and were all of them students except Herr Frost, in attendance upon Iwin, and a tall, red-faced gentleman who was superintending the feast, and who was introduced to every one as a relative of the Baron's, and a former student of the University of Dorpat. At first, the excessive brilliancy and formal appointments of the reception-rooms had such a chilling effect upon this youthful company, that every one involuntarily hugged the walls, except a few bolder spirits and the ex-Dorpat student, who with his waistcoat already unbuttoned seemed to be in every room and in every corner of every room at once, and filled the whole place with his resonant, agreeable, never-ceasing tenor voice. The remainder of the guests preferred either to remain silent or to talk in discreet tones of professors, faculties, examinations, and other serious and interesting matters. Yet every one, without exception, kept watching the door of the dining-room, and, while trying to conceal the fact, wearing an expression which said, Come, it is time to begin. I, too, felt that it was time to begin, and awaited the beginning with pleasurable impatience. After footmen had handed round tea among the guests, the Dorpat student asked Frost, in Russian, "'Can you make punch, Frost?' "'Oh, ja,' replied Frost, with a joyful flourish of his heels, and the other went on. "'Then do you set about it?' They addressed each other in the second-person singular as former comrades at Dorpat. Frost accordingly departed to the dining-room with great strides of his bowed muscular legs, and after some walking backwards and forwards deposited upon the drawing-room table a large punch-bowl, accompanied by a ten-pound sugar-loaf supported on three students' swords placed crosswise. Meanwhile, the Baron had been going round among his guests as they sat regarding the punch-bowl, and addressing them with a face of immutable gravity in the formula, I beg of you all to drink of this loving cup in student fashion, that there may be good fellowship among the members of our course. Unbutton your waistcoats, or take them off altogether, as you please. Already the Dorpat student had divested himself of his tunic, and rolled up his white shirt-sleeves above his elbows, and now, planting his feet firmly apart, he proceeded to set fire to the rum in the punch-bowl. "'Gentlemen, put out the candles,' he cried with a sudden shout, so loud and insistent, that we seemed all of us to be shouting at once. However— we still went on silently regarding the punch-bowl and the white shirt of the Dorpat student, with a feeling that a moment of great solemnity was approaching. "'Put out the lights, Frost, I tell you,' the Dorpat student shouted again. Evidently the punch was now sufficiently burnt. 
Accordingly, every one helped to extinguish the candles until the room was in total darkness, save for a spot where the white shirts and hands of the three students supporting the sugar-loaf on their crossed swords were lit up by the lurid flames from the bowl. Yet the Dorpat student's tenor voice was not the only one to be heard, for in different quarters of the room resounded chattering and laughter. Many had taken off their tunics, especially students whose garments were of fine cloth and perfectly new, and I now did the same, with a consciousness that it was beginning. There had been no great festivity as yet, but I felt assured that things would go splendidly when once we had begun drinking tumblers of the potion that was now in course of preparation. At length the punch was ready, and the Dorpat student, with much bespattering of the table as he did so, ladled the liquor into tumblers, and cried, "'Now, gentlemen, please!' When we had each of us taken a sticky tumbler of the stuff into our hands, the Dorpat student and Frost sang a German song in which the word Hach kept occurring again and again, while we joined in haphazard fashion in the chorus. Next we clinked glasses together, shouted something in praise of punch, crossed hands, and took our first drink of the sweet, strong mixture. After that there was no further waiting. The wine was in full swing. The first glassful consumed, a second was poured out. Yet for all that I began to feel a throbbing in my temples, and that the flames seemed to be turning purple, and that every one around me was laughing and shouting, things seemed lacking in real gaiety, and I somehow felt that, as a matter of fact, we were all of us finding the affair rather dull, and only pretending to be enjoying it. The Dorpat student may have been an exception, for he continued to grow more and more red in the face and more and more ubiquitous as he filled up empty glasses and stained the table with fresh spots of the sweet sticky stuff. The precise sequence of events I cannot remember, but I can recall feeling strongly attracted towards Frost and the Dorpat student that evening, learning their German song by heart, and kissing them each on their sticky sweet lips. Also that that same evening I conceived a violent hatred against the Dorpat student, and was for pushing him from his chair, but thought better of it. Also, that besides feeling the same spirit of independence towards the rest of the company as I had felt on the night of the matriculation dinner, my head ached and swam so badly that I thought each moment would be my last. Also, that for some reason or another we all of us sat down on the floor and imitated the movements of rowers in a boat as we sang in chorus, Down Our Mother Stream the Volga. Also, that I conceived this procedure on our part to be uncalled for. Also, that as I lay prone upon the floor I crossed my legs and began wriggling about like a tzigane, gypsy dancer. Also, that I ricked someone's neck, and came to the conclusion that I should never have done such a thing if I had not been drunk. Also, that we had some supper and another kind of liquor, and that I then went to the door to get some fresh air, also that my head seemed suddenly to grow chill, and that I noticed as I drove away the seat of the vehicle was so sharply aslant and slippery that for me to retain my position behind Kuzma was impossible, also that he seemed to have turned all flabby, and to be waving about like a dish-clout. But what I remember best is that throughout the whole of that evening I never ceased to feel that I was acting with excessive stupidity and pretending to be enjoying myself, to like drinking a great deal, and to be in no way drunk, as well as that every one else present was acting with equal stupidity in pretending those same things. 
All the time I had a feeling that each one of my companions was finding the festivities as distasteful as I was myself. But in the belief that he was the only one doing so, felt himself bound to pretend that he was very merry, in order not to mar the general hilarity. Also, strange to state, I felt that I ought to keep up this pretense for the sole reason that into a punch-bowl there had been poured three bottles of champagne at nine roubles the bottle, and ten bottles of rum at four making seventy roubles in all, exclusive of the supper. So convinced of my folly did I feel that, when, at next day's lecture, those of my comrades who had been at Baron Z's party seemed not only in no way ashamed to remember what they had done, but even talked about it so that other students might hear of their doings. I felt greatly astonished. They all declared that it had been a splendid wine, that Dorpat's students were just the fellows for that kind of thing and that there had been consumed at no less than forty bottles of rum among the twenty guests, some of whom had dropped senseless under the table. That they should care to talk about such things seemed strange enough, but that they should care to lie about them seemed absolutely unintelligible. CHAPTER Forty: MY FRIENDSHIP WITH THE Nekhludoffs. That winter, too, I saw a great deal of both Dmitri, who often looked us up, and of his family, with whom I was beginning to stand on intimate terms. The Nekhludoffs, that is to say mother, aunt, and daughter, always spent their evenings at home, at which time the princess liked young men to visit her, at all events young men of the kind whom she described as able to spend an evening without playing cards or dancing. Yet such young fellows must have been few and far between, for, although I went to the Nekhludoffs almost every evening, I seldom found other guests present. Thus I came to know the members of this family, and their several dispositions well enough to be able to form clear ideas as to their mutual relations, and to be quite at home amid the rooms and furniture of their house. Indeed, so long as no other guests were present, I felt entirely at my ease. True, at first I used to feel a little uncomfortable when left alone in the room with Veronica, for I could not rid myself of the idea that, though far from pretty, she wished me to fall in love with her. But in time this nervousness of mine began to lessen, since she always looked so natural, and talked to me so exactly as though she were conversing with her brother or Lubov Sergeyevna, that I came to look upon her simply as a person to whom it was in no way dangerous or wrong to show that I took pleasure in her company. Throughout the whole of our acquaintance she appeared to be merely a plain, though not positively ugly, girl, concerning whom one would never ask oneself the question, Am I, or am I not, in love with her? Sometimes I would talk to her direct, but more often I did so through Dmitri or Lubov Sergeyevna, and it was the latter method which afforded me the most pleasure. I derived considerable gratification from discoursing when she was there, from hearing her sing, and in general from knowing that she was in the same room as myself but it was seldom now that any thoughts of what our future relations might ever be, or that any dreams of self-sacrifice for my friend if he should ever fall in love with my sister, came into my head. If any such ideas or fancies occurred to me, I felt satisfied with the present, and drove away all thoughts about the future. Yet in spite of this intimacy I continued to look upon it as my bounden duty to keep the Nekhludoffs in general, and Veronika in particular, in ignorance of my true feelings and tastes and strove always to appear altogether another young man than what I really was. To appear, indeed, such a young man as could never possibly have existed. I affected to be soulful, 
and would go off into raptures and exclamations and impassioned gestures whenever I wished it to be thought that anything pleased me, while on the other hand I tried always to seem indifferent towards any unusual circumstance which I myself perceived or which I had had pointed out to me. I aimed always at figuring both as a sarcastic cynic divorced from every sacred tie and as a shrewd observer, as well as at being accounted logical in all my conduct, precise and methodical in all my ways of life, and at the same time contemptuous of all materiality. I may safely say that I was far better in reality than the strange being into whom I attempted to convert myself. Yet. Whatever I was or was not, the Nekhludoffs were unfailingly kind to me, and happily for myself, took no notice, as it now appears, of my play-acting. Only Lubov Sergeyevna, who I believe really believed me to be a great egoist, atheist, and cynic, had no love for me, but frequently disputed what I said, flew into tempers, and left me petrified with her disjointed, irrelevant utterances. Yet Dmitri held always to the same strange something more than friendly relations with her, and used to say not only that she was misunderstood by every one, but that she did him a world of good. This, however, did not prevent the rest of his family from finding fault with his infatuation. Once when talking to me about this incomprehensible attachment, Veronika explained the matter thus. You see, Dmitri is a selfish person. He is very proud and for all his intellect very fond of praise, and of surprising people, and of always being first. While little Auntie, the general nickname for Lubov Sergeyevna, is innocent enough to admire him, and at the same time devoid of the tact to conceal her admiration, consequently she flatters his vanity, not out of pretense, but sincerely. This dictum I laid to heart and when thinking it over afterwards could not but come to the conclusion that Veronika was very sensible. Wherefore I was glad to award her promotion thenceforth in my regard. Yet, though I was always glad enough to assign her any credit which might arise from my discovering in her character any signs of good sense or other moral qualities, I did so with strict moderation, and never ran to any extreme pitch of enthusiasm in the process. Thus, when Sophia Ivanovna, who was never weary of discussing her niece, related to me how four years ago Veronika had suddenly given away all her clothes to some peasant children, without first asking permission to do so, so that the garments had subsequently to be recovered, I did not at once accept the fact as entitling Veronika to elevation in my opinion, but went on giving her good advice about the unpracticalness of such views on property. When other guests were present at the Nekhludoffs, among them sometimes Woloda and Dubkoff, I used to withdraw myself to a remote plain, and, with the complacency and quiet consciousness of strength of an habitué of the house, listened to what others were saying without putting in a remark myself. Yet everything that these others said seemed to me so immeasurably stupid that I used to feel inwardly amazed that such a clever, logical woman as the princess, with her equally logical family, could listen to and answer such rubbish. Had it, however, entered into my head to compare what others said with what I myself said when there alone, I should probably have ceased to feel surprise. Still less should I have continued to feel surprise had I not believed that the women of our own household, Avdosia, Lubachka, and Katenka, were superior to the rest of their sex, for in that case I should have remembered the kind of things over which Avdosia and Katenka would laugh 
and jest with Dubkoff from one end of an evening to the other, I should have remembered that seldom did an evening pass but Dubkoff would first have an argument about something, and then read in a sententious voice either some verses beginning, O banquet de la vie, infortune, convive, or extracts from the demon. In short, I should have remembered what nonsense they used to chatter for hours at a time. It need hardly be said that when guests were present, Berenika paid less attention to me than when we were alone, as well as that I was deprived of the reading and music which I so greatly loved to hear. When talking to guests, she lost in my eyes her principal charm, that of quiet seriousness and simplicity. I remember how strange it used to seem to me to hear her discoursing on theatres, and the weather, to my brother Woloda. I knew that of all things in the world he most despised and shunned banality, and that Veronika herself used to make fun of forced conversations on the weather and similar matters. Why, then, when meeting in society, did they both of them talk such intolerable nothings, and, as it were, shame one another? After talks of this kind, I used to feel silently resentful against Woloda, as well as next day to rally Veronika on her overnight guests. Yet one result of it was that I derived all the greater pleasure from being one of the Nekhludoff's family circle. Also, for some reason or another, I began to prefer meeting Dmitri in his mother's drawing-room to being with him alone. End of section 10. Recording by Bill Borst.